right, hello, welcome everybody. All right, so let's get started. Let me open us in a time of uh, prayer, and then we can go ahead. Dear Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have appeared as a bright light in our darkness of sin, so that we may know you and that we may come to a knowledge of Christ who saves us from all of our sin, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we remember that this is your gospel message, that we can be saved by your grace. May we not despise it. May we not try to get around it, how your grace works and what is the message of the gospel that you have given to us. It is a precious message. May we steward it well. and May we love you as our Lord and as our Savior. And may we hear your word and you prepare our hearts to receive it, not only in our minds, but also in our hearts, so that we would be those that would embody and adorn the doctrine of God to a watching world that they may see you and glorify your name as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, everybody, I trust that your discussions in your small groups were a blessing. Tonight we're going to be talking about the church's calling for gospel living. And uh, before we get into the, the text or the, the observations, let's, go, let's turn to Titus and be reminded of what God's word has to say. So this is Titus 2. I'll just read the whole chapter. And God's word says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right, so that's our passage for tonight. And if I can have my next slide, we'll just walk through very quickly some of the introductory portions of this passage. Do I control that? All right, wonderful. So just a quick warm-up here. We are in the New Testament. All right, so that means that Christ has appeared. He has lived, died, and risen again. 
and that it has been revealed that he was that specific revelation or that specific means of salvation. In terms of genre, we're in the epistles. And so that means that this is a letter that is written to address a specific issue with plain language. We're not thinking about um, symbolic imagery. We're just trying to understand what is the problem and what's the solution. All right, next slide. Okay, this is review, so I'll go through this quickly. I understand the text is very small. Um, but basically, Paul is writing. Paul is writing to Titus in particular, and Titus and Paul have served together in ministry for a number of years and in a variety of contexts. Titus is the one that is given, addressed here, not only in this epistle, but also has been charged to set in order what remains in Crete. And Crete... Um, it was one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean where it has a reputation for being worldly and for being ungodly. And specifically, Paul is now talking about how to address or how to go about ministry within the church. So that's the framework. That's the big picture of what we're trying to understand this passage in. And if I can go to my next slide. All right, great. So just to make it very clear what we're trying to accomplish here, the epistle of Titus starts off with the opening greeting in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, and then it moves into addressing what is required of the gospel of the leadership within the church, specifically a leadership that reflects and embodies the gospel. Right? So that's the qualifications of the elder. Verses 10 through 19 of chapter 1, give a reason or an explanation why these leaders need to be the way that they are. Similarly, in verses 1 through 10, we see a address that describes what is required in accordance with sound doctrine within the church. So we see the men, the women, the older men, the younger men, everybody within the church is addressed there. And that's the passage right before what we're studying tonight. So tonight, what you're going to see is the reason why. Why should sound doctrine and godly living exist and be in the church? What is this calling that Christ has given to the church? And so let's look for that in this passage. So next slide. All right, so I hope you can follow along here. You have your Bibles in front of you if you need help. But what we're going to just do is just, again, set the stage for this passage. The very first word gives us a hint of how we are to understand this passage, and it is the word for. All right, for. This is a, our connection to the previous passage. Again, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that in summary from verse 1, it says, teach what accords with sound doctrine, and then it is book ended by verse 10, which says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Right? Again, that section is talking about sound doctrine and godly living. Verse 11, by starting off with four, is our connection point, and it describes the intent or why we must do what was previously described. That's important. So this, is, these, this entire section within this chapter is connected. All the things that we talked about just previously in verse, verses 1 through 10 
what godly living is supposed to look like practically in each of these different people and adorning the gospel in terms of what should be prescribed in terms of sound doctrine, looking what that's supposed to look like in the life of the people is now connected to the passage we're going to look at tonight. Furthermore, the next part that we want to just make sure we understand is what is, um, what are the people or who's being addressed and described in this passage? And so I've tried to highlight that for you here. And there's three different um, categories that we can talk about. The first part is God. God, Christ himself, is throughout this passage. The grace of God has appeared, right? The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession. God runs through this entire passage. Similarly, and this is, if you're not colorblind, this is green on the slide above you, People, us, or the people of the household of God, the people within the church are also described throughout this entire passage. Salvation for all people, training us for our blessed hope, the glory of our great God, for us to redeem and then let no one disregard. That's all describing us, the people within the church. And then finally, there's you at the very end. This is Paul addressing Titus specifically. But what we see here is that this passage is talking about the relationship between God and man as pertains to those who should and who can live godly lives in accordance with sound doctrine. Right? And then by addressing Titus specifically, this must be in his mind when he considers ministry or when he considers shepherding within the household of God. All right, next slide. So if that's all the players that we see in this passage, all of the characters, what are they doing? Well, it starts off with that very first verse in, chapter, in verse 11. And this is the main idea just to start off with. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. This is the big picture here. The whole reason that we are to live the gospel life and that we should live the gospel life is because God's grace has appeared. This kind of grace that God has given to us is his salvific grace. It's not just God is kind to us. It's not just that God is fluffy. It's none of that. It's that God's salvific grace has appeared in our darkness for all of us. And that that grace trains us in its appearing. To break it down a little bit more, apart from the grace of God appearing in our life, who are we? How are we described according to the word of God? A familiar verse that should pop into our mind can come from Ephesians chapter 2, where it describes those before they have been saved as dead in their trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Apart from God's gospel, we are just like the world, and we live in that filth, 
of our behavior, our deeds, our desires, all of that comes naturally to us. But yet the kind of grace that God gives us appears like an epiphany. Appears it doesn't come out of our own work or our own intuition. We haven't figured it out by ourselves, but God has to give new life to these hearts of stone to make them hearts of flesh. It is that kind of grace that God gives where we are made together with Christ. And not only this salvation makes us alive, but it trains us. And so what we see here is that that's salvation that God provides. It's not only a right relationship with God, but it is being trained, being sanctified by the grace of God. The idea of training is the idea of sitting in the classroom of God's grace and learning where you are instructed what is right and what is wrong. You are corrected. And it's not just a one-time declaration, but this is a repetition and instruction so that the lesson is learned. This is the type of God, grace that God brings in salvation. And this refers to and describes what kind of sanctification is expected. And so to dive into that more deeply, let's go to the next slide. All right, good. So what kind of instruction, what kind of training does God provide? That's what we mentioned before. It's specifically two things here in this passage. It is to renounce first ungodliness and worldly passions, and then secondly, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. In short, it's to put off and put on. To put off and put on. This is that idea that is repeated again from Ephesians of what repentance looks like. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And that comes after to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life. We need both of these because that's the instruction that God provides. It's not just the adding to your previous life before you know Christ. It's not just the unsaved believer now going to church and now participating in church and now learning the Bible and studying the Bible. But what precedes that is the renunciation of ungodliness. It is to see ungodliness and to cast it away, to put it off, to declare a broken, no longer be a, a, a lot allied with the things of this world. Not only the state of ungodliness, but worldly desires and worldly passions that doesn't inflame you anymore, that doesn't motivate you anymore, that gets put off. And instead, there's not a void, but that is replaced with increasing passion, self-control. And that's, that's the idea there that while on this side of heaven, there is that ongoing battle to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, to be instructed by the things of God rather than the things of this world. There is the acknowledgement of what is right and wrong and taking that step of faith and walking forward in what the Spirit provides and what the Spirit instructs and leads you in. 
instead of being carried away by every wind of doctrine or being carried away by whatever passions would inflame you. There is a self-control there. And to not only be instructed in self-control, but it is an increasing uprightness and godliness in your life. It is this standard and it is this reflection of who God is more and more as befitting the children of God. If God has truly appeared in your life, if God has truly adopted you as a son or daughter of Christ, his children increasingly reflect his image. And that is also seen in that first part of verse 13, in what our hope is placed in. It's not just a working to better ourselves in this world, but ultimately, the children of God look forward to the completion of what he's begun and what he is doing right now. The blessed hope that is founded in, the, in Christ himself in the appearing of his glory. And so because we have that hope that the work that he is doing right now and that he will complete, um, will be finished by him, we walk by faith and we engage in good works, works that Christ would affirm. Notice that the good works that we are called to be zealous for and to engage in follow after the good work of Christ to save. Let's not mix up that, that order of operations there. Christ saves us by grace through faith alone. And so let us live in a way that is befitting the children of God. Let us live in a way that is instructed, that we are instructed by God's grace. Let us go to his word and learn who is not only our great God, but let us learn more and more to see him more clearly in the pages of scripture. Let us learn more earnestly and desperately how great is the hope that we have only in Christ and how devoid and empty the things of this world are. To see the sinfulness of this world more clearly, how they are the ungodly, to see the ungodliness of this world for what it is, to not be swayed by the temptations or the false promises that this world has to have, not to be swayed by the temporary passions that would inflame us, but instead to live by certainty, to live for a blessed hope that we know that God is a promise keeper. He keeps his word. All right. Let's go to that next portion here. Next slide, please. And what anchors that blessed hope? That blessed hope that we are waiting for, that the children of God ought to wait for, it's not just a figment of our imagination. And it's not just a nice idea that, oh, somewhere over the rainbow there is a better day. It is in the certainty of knowing that Christ is who he says he is and that he will accomplish all that he promised. And specifically, that Christ will return to win and to, re and to take back what is his. And the certainty that we are presented with here is that he first gave himself for us. Christ first died upon the cross. He first lived the perfect life in order to what? To accomplish two things, to redeem 
us believers, those whom he has chosen and elected from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. There is that twofold desire that Christ is specifically described to pursue here. He gave himself for this purpose. Do we trust this? Or would we somehow think that God's work of salvation, that Christ's work of salvation is inadequate for the task? That Christ could do all of that work to live the perfect life and to die and to rise again, and yet somehow those who are believers, those of us who are called to face temptation or to continue in sanctification, that there's an excuse to give in to lawlessness, to lawless thoughts and desires, to fantasies, to think that God can excuse and approve that little sin that maybe nobody else notices. God gave himself for all of us to redeem us from all of lawlessness for himself to purify. In other words, that God himself would approve what has been purified for his own possession. Right? God doesn't give himself anything less than the best, for he is worthy of all, that, all the glory. We have to remember, if this is what God has done and what God has accomplished and what God desires, there is hope for us. There is hope for us because we know if this is God's promise, and what he has stated clearly in Scripture, that whatever we go through, whether it be trials, whether it be distress, and whether it be anxieties and frustrations, it all comes under the concept of God is doing his good work in us to accomplish increase in purity and to cleanse us from all lawlessness. Let's go to the next slide. And so as we walk through the passage again, what we have just described is all the work of God. If you, walk, if you look at that passage, verses 11 through 14, this is all that the grace of God in its appearing has accomplished. It trains us, and, what, and it describes what all of that training demands and what it's all based upon. And yet in verse 15, we see a different audience being described there. Now Paul shifts his focus instead of describing what is the reason for gospel living to what is the responsibility with regards to the call for gospel living. And here he's specifically talking to Titus, but this is to all of us, especially for those who are shepherds. And Paul tells Timothy that he must, with regards to these things, which is the gospel, he must declare these things. You don't waver or whisper about God's gospel and what it requires and what it demands. You must declare them, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. It must be crystal clear that God's way is the rate of redemption, and then apart from God's gospel work is condemnation. All authority here is not the authority of more eloquence or 
argumentation that makes sense to the people, but this is the authority of saying, because Christ has stated these things and has accomplished these things and done these things, this is the life that he has bought for his people. You can appeal to that authority. This is God's work. This is God's word. Do our lives measure up to that? Do our desires, are they in keeping with what God has prescribed is appropriate for sound doctrine? Do our interactions and what we strive after resemble a heart that looks forward to the blessed hope of his appearing? Or do we desire to play around in the mud here on earth just a little longer so we can satisfy our deep desires? Declare, exhort, rebuke. It's an echo of verse 9 of chapter 1. What's expected of elders, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's the responsibility that the shepherds are to have. They come with that responsibility, and that comes with the authority of Christ. Now let's put, start putting all of these things together. Let's go to the next slide. All right. So what do we see described in verses 11 through 14? What we see there is a picture of what the gospel looks like at work in people, of God's grace when it works in the people of God. We see moving from left to right that apart from God and his grace that there is only darkness and condemnation of sin. Without God's regenerating work, that's all that you have, that's all that a person has and they are unable and lost in the power of sin, unable to do the good works that are befitting the children of God. Instead, they are children of wrath and lost in worldly passions, lost in earthly desires, hating God, hating and despising his word. But the solution and what is required to, to fix that, to save that person, is the grace of God, the salvific grace of God, which speaks to Christ's sufficient work upon the cross to pay the, pay the price of sin and satisfy the wrath of God. Only when that grace has appeared in a person's life, then that grace will continue that work of salvation, training us. And that's that middle portion. You have to go through encountering the grace of God before you grow in sanctification. You don't get to mix up the order of these things. Only those who have been brought into the household of God as children of God grow. And that's, that's in a way you can look at it. This is the evidence of a child of God. They grow in renouncing ungodliness and worldly possessions because the Spirit is at work within them. The grace of God is doing its work within this person. And in, hand in hand with that idea of renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions is that idea that necessarily they are living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, waiting for the blessed hope. This is the increasing pattern 
of a regenerated sinner as they are being instructed by God's grace, as they encounter God's word, as they see it in the pages of scripture, who Christ is, as they hear the call to glorify God and to honor him. This is their desire and this is their pattern. And all of that looks forward to knowing Christ has not only accomplished these things to that great exchange upon the cross, but Christ will come back to take his own with him. And so the people of God desire their great Savior, and they look forward to in blessed hope of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to ask ourselves, where do you fit in? Sure, this is a passage that's talking about setting in order things within the church, but it starts with each of us looking at ourselves. Have we seen and tasted the goodness of God and the grace of God and known salvation from sin? If so, our lives will look like what's described in this passage, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. Is there an increasing view to see sin for what it is and the ungodliness of it, the hatefulness of it, the disgust of it, is that our desire, or do we like to coddle with, oh, I'm just a little frustrated today? Do we like to give excuses to our sin? Oh, you know, I lost my temper, but it was because I was hungry and I get hangry. And do we excuse the private sins because we think nobody else sees to engage in pornography, to engage in fantasies that are unbefitting a child of God. Where do our desires live? What, do we, what, do we, what kind of instruction do we place ourselves under? Do we sit in instruction before the TV and before the council of this world and take it all in and laugh and celebrate what is portrayed there? Or do we bring ourselves and drag ourselves under the instruction of the word because we know this is where God's grace works. It's in his word. It's in beholding Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you think you belong to yourself? Do you think God just rents you out and only, and only has partial ownership of you if you are truly saved? No, that cannot be. Christ paid the sufficient price upon the cross so that all who the Father would give him would be his, and that he would fulfill the work of salvation in them. What's the alternative? If you are not growing and being instructed in the grace of God, if you are not renouncing in increasing manner ungodliness and worldly passions, if you are not in increasing manner living upright, self-controlled and godly lives in the present age, then that this passage is telling us you belong in the category of the darkness of sin. You're lost there. You have not seen the appearing of God's grace. You have not been regenerated. Instead, 
you still suffer under the condemnation of sin. You still ought to fear the penalty of your sin. You are still lost in the power of sin. And you will never be separated from the presence of your sin. That's a weighty question to consider. And that's really the focus of this passage as we consider the next slide. This is all about Christ in explicit manner. The gospel is God's good news. To save how? Why is it good news? It's because he gives us his grace to do its good work throughout the entirety of the Christian life. First of all, this is God's work. If this was up to you or me or any of us, we would fail utterly and repeatedly. But God's work accomplishes everything needed. He puts us in the right place before God. Positionally, we are justified. What that means is that when we stand before God as any believer, whether it be the youngest to the oldest, whether it be somebody with special needs or the greatest scholar, we would stand justified and that God would be able to look at us and say, Christ has died for your sins. But it also means not only that we have the right standing before God, but that we would be growing in being sanctified, that we would be growing in likeness to the God and Christ who has saved us. This is good news for the child of God, is that they would be increasingly more and more like their father whom they love, that they would be increasingly more and more pleasing to the one that loved and died for them. And that that would be seen in increasing anticipation of being not only freed from the presence of sin and the power of sin ultimately, but in increasing anticipation of being with the one who not only they truly love, but in being, reunite, being with the one who has truly loved them. Christ gave himself to save elect sinners with this explicit purpose of salvation. This is the salvation that God provides. It must sanctify. It must redeem us from every lawless deed. There's no area of our lives that we can hold back to ourselves. It's not only a regeneration of our life, of our hearts, but it's that ongoing purification that every aspect of our lives grows more and more into conformity with Christ. This is, when you consider the entire epistle of Titus, this is what presents an evangelistic testimony to a world. How can the world look at the people of God and know that they are truly his? It's when the people of God display his godliness. It's when the people of God live out the gospel which they profess and proclaim, where they can see in his people that God's great gospel work is powerful to save. This is Christ's purpose that he has kept us here on this earth. It's to be that testimony. And God has given us his provision of both his word and in prayer that we can be taught by his grace. Let's go to the next slide. Just so that we don't think that this is only in Titus, we need to be reminded that this is the consistent theme of Scripture. 
1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We need to remember that when God saves us, he owns us, and that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing that we don't live on our own. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This salvation life, the life of a Christian being sanctified, is a lovely thing. And we need to see it that way. And we need to desire that. All too often, we come to our troubles and we come to our trials and we just want relief. Or we encounter our friend who has troubles and they, instead of being crucified together with Christ to grow more and more, dying to themselves and growing more in Christ, we counsel them, oh, it'll get better. Oh, don't worry. It's not that bad. Let me compare my life with yours. Instead, we ought to be comparing our lives to Christ and to desire his life to live in us more powerfully and more truly. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has his purpose in our salvation. We don't get to make it up for ourselves. And his good work is the transforming, amazing work of grace in our lives. And that's what Matthew 5 refers to. We need to live out that presence, but that first means we need to be living according to what was described here in this passage in Titus. The only light and the only salt we have to offer this world is what God's grace does in our life to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That is what we'll speak, and that's what we'll have power as an evangelistic witness in this world. All right, let's just wrap it up with the authorial intent. Almost there. All right, how can we summarize this? Well, specifically in this passage, Paul is talking to Titus, and he's charging him to declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Right, pretty comprehensive, without exception. There's no other way, there's no other gospel. And what is he telling him to speak to? It's the call to gospel living in, according, in accordance with sound doctrine. In other words, in a manner appropriate for the people of God's household. Live the way you're supposed to live as those who have been bought by Christ's blood, as those that have been adopted into the household of God. This is something you need instruction in. The grace of God is what accomplishes this, not only to usher you in, but to instruct you, and it seals the deal with God's, or with Christ appearing again. The sanctifying work described here is the evidence of gospel life. If there is no sanctifying work of God in this person's life, it means God's grace is not there, because God's grace is not impotent. And then furthermore, because we have that verse 14, this is the work of Christ that we're talking about. This is not just exhortation from the pulpit. This is not just the word of man. 
that this is the word of God and the work of God that motivates and demands this kind of living because he has bought you and because he has given himself for this purpose. How can we specifically apply these things? Next slide, please. All right, leaders and shepherds, do you shepherd the flock with God's grace in this way, addressing both redemption and sanctification? In other words, what sanctification looks like and demands. And maybe to press the point more, are the lines separating what God, what is of God, what God approves, versus what is of the world or what God despises, are those clearly proclaimed and strongly defended? Again, verse 9 of chapter 1. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word, for God doesn't lie, as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those sharply who contradict. That's the role and responsibility of leaders and shepherds, whether it be from the pulpit, whether it be within the home, husbands, this is how we need to be shepherding our wives, people within the household of God, those that might be on the receiving end of these things. First of all, do we trust that this is God's plan of salvation? Or do we say that there's another name by which we may be saved? Or, that we say, or do we say that God's plan of salvation works according to our own terms? We would be fooling ourselves to think that. Not only do we trust, but do we receive and desire God's gracious provision of grace and his gospel in our life. And if this is the way that it's described to work, are we willing to receive that? Or do we only want God's grace on our own terms? Do we only want shepherding that we approve of? That is, um, that is palatable to our taste? Or do we give thanks that God would give any of his grace to us because we see it for what it is and we recognize the lostness of our own sin? We all need to be asking ourselves, are you growing in being instructed by the grace of God? Or are you growing in the things of this world? There's only two paths here. Either you are being instructed by the grace of God, or you are learning the way of the flesh, the way of the world. Is whatever you are instructed by, does that lead to a joyful anticipation of Christ's return? Does God's gospel grace motivate you to do good works, and this is ultimately God's good work in your life, the testimony of God's saving grace, so that God would be glorified as others see you. And then finally, we need to consider as a church, Lighthouse Bible Church, is this understanding of how God's gospel grace works evident in our interactions together? This isn't just a pulpit ministry of where we talk about God's grace, but this needs to be part of our one another's, how we interact together. What we fellowship together, do we recognize we are sinners redeemed by God's grace for his glory? Do we counsel each other or give advice to one another, knowing that our only hope is in Christ and the grace that he provides and the grace that he works in our lives? Or do we give 
broadly about. And is that ultimately pointing to, for us, are we increasing in holiness? Are we more increasingly more like Christ, or are we not? And that that comes back to who instructs us. We need to be instructed by God and his word. Man has no wisdom that's worth offering. And so that's hopefully what we walk away with. Let me pray and close our time together. Dear Father God, we are so thankful that you have appeared and that your grace has appeared bringing salvation to all people. You could have very easily condemned us and punished us justly for our sin, and yet you appeared in your grace, not only to save in a one-time positional sense to set us in the right place, only for us to trip up and earn your judgment again, but instead you have saved us to put us in the right position and place. You are working in us and training us to be freed from the power of sin more and more each day. You are doing your good work in this, Lord, and we can give thanks because none of this is of ourselves that we could accomplish by ourselves. Yet you make us more and more like your people so that we would not only demonstrate your likeness, Lord, but ultimately for the purpose of demonstrating your glory to the watching world. May we indeed be people that love you and delight in your grace, Lord. May we see that there is no salvation apart from your grace. May we see that your grace demands a life that lives and is faithful to the sound doctrine of your word, that you teach us to live a specific way, and that that way stands out and is evidence of how we have been called out of this world, so that when the world sees your people, they see the great, not only creator, but they see the great savior. May they see and tremble for your great goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.